Hey, listener, this is one of those episodes where we talk before the introduction. One of our favorites. And speaking of talking, there's an announcement that you need to know about. Faith is starting a publications department, and that's going to be led, the director of that department. It's going to be Tim, which is exciting. And they are going to publish Tim's book, Song of Songs for Singles. And there's some ways that you can contribute to that project as well as other projects. So Tim, why don't you tell us how they can help with those projects? Yeah, thanks. Um, So we're looking to raise $10,000. Two donors have agreed to uh, donate $5,000 as a matching gift. So if we can raise $5,000, then boom, we've got it. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people about Song of Songs for Singles. There's been a lot of interest. So if you would like to partner with us to get Song of Songs for Singles going and then the publications department launched, it's going to be both because there's a lot of upfront costs. Um, Then what you can do is mail a check to Faith. I know some of you might not be familiar. What is a check? I know. But uh, that's the easiest way. Mail in a check, put publications on it. You can also call in and have it put on your credit card. So um, Faith Baptist Bible College, uh, 515-964-0601. That's their number. You can give them a ring and tell them, hey, I want to help launch the publications department, and they can help you out with that. And if you donate to that, it is a tax deduction. And not only will this publications department help Tim publish his book, all of your other favorite faith professors will also uh, be able to publish through this department as well. So as you give a gift to that, it's going to help many publish books that they've worked on for a while. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In this episode, we are going to answer a listener question or listener submission. Just a reminder that, you know, at the end of the podcast, you might not always make it to the end of the podcast, but it says, thanks for listening to the Thinklings Podcast. And it says you can email us questions or topics and things like that. And our email is thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. So Randy Vodder of um, Camp Eden, I believe that's, Randy, if that's not where you currently are, you let me know. But I think you're Colorado, Camp Eden, Beth Eden School and Church. At least that's where I met Randy. And he emailed us a question about the Song of Solomon and an article that had kind of gained some traction back in the fall. And so our resident song expert, Tim Little, is going to dissect or we're, we're, we're all going to walk through the article and share some thoughts. But before we do that, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Book and business. Books and business. So I've got a book today, and this is a book that uh, I had heard about for a while and then decided to assign it in a class. And so I have been reading it for uh, that class, which is Discipleship of Adults this spring. And uh, the the book is The Seven Laws of Teaching. And you're like, what does that have to do with discipleship of adults? Well, um, that's, you know, that's that's what my students ask. What? Okay. What? Uh, Okay. Well, it's discipleship. You got to teach something. I mean, that's part of it. (laughs) But I don't, I don't think, I don't think in the, 
certainly sure, the way that I'm using the yeah. term. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Well, okay. to be more correct, pedagogy or andragogy, which andragogy would be the teaching of adults. I thought andragogy worked in our publications department. Andragogy does work in our publications department. <laughs> oh, that was really good. <laughs> I refer to him as gogs. Okay. But, that, uh, that's okay. And I know his son listens to this podcast, but uh, roll up that ball yarn. Um, so the book is The Seven Laws of Teaching. Uh, by John Milton Gregory, and the specific version that I've been reading is, uh, it, it's got a foreword by Douglas Wilson. Man, I'm jealous of that one. Um, it also has uh, some study questions and evaluation tools by Larry Stevenson, but I am much less uh, knowledgeable on him than I am on Douglas Wilson. So um, I'm just going to comment on douglas wilson's forward here and there's you know we'll get into the book maybe another time it, it's a great if you if you do any form of teaching or are a teacher in your church at a school whatever whatever it'd be very helpful for you to think this through uh i think there's some really good principles in here that would be valuable for parents to think about like as they teach their children so um but what wilson does in the introduction is the book is the seven laws of teaching what he does in the foreword is he talks about seven characteristics. He calls them seven disciplines of highly effective teachers. So he's kind of doing what the book is doing, but in a different way and much, much shorter. So anyway, uh, number one, he says, a highly effective teacher will love God, love life, love the students, and love the subject he teaches. And, uh, so we beautiful. Yeah. We've, we've mm. talked about this before. It's my favorite quote right there. There's another book that I have in a class, uh, the art of teaching by Gilbert Hyatt. And he talks about those things, not so much the God part of it or the love life part of it, but he talks about, you need to love the student and you need to, uh, what I like to say it in class, you got to love the subjects, the oh, subject and nice. the subjects. That's really like, nice. You have to love what you're teaching about. Like you should have a passion about the thing you're teaching that maybe the normal person doesn't. And then you should have a, an interest in your students. It doesn't mean that you're best friends with all of them, but you should have a benevolence, a kindness, a, you know, a love of the student to help them grow. And so, uh, I think that's spot on with number one. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice when you see themes come up similar ideas in multiple places. And so pretty much every book I've read about teaching or even I'd throw in the, the more specific term that I'm using it in discipleship, everything I've ever read on teaching or discipleship talks about, well, you need to love God. <laughs> uh, you need to love the student or the person you're discipling and you should love the subject. You should want to teach people the word of God or whatever your particular subject is, uh, that, that loving life one is, uh, is an interesting one and knowing a little bit about Wilson, it's, you know, he's a pretty, I don't know what the word for it is, but he's a very vivacious character. That is that a good way of saying it? <laughs> I think that's, that's good. Vivacious 70 year old guy. Yeah. Well, I just think he's, I don't know how old he is, but he's something like that. Like whenever he does like those videos on YouTube or, when you see him doing something, it's like, he's not, he's not humdrum. He's not bored. You know, he, he's, he's always got like kind of a quippy fun attitude to him. And I think that's kind he's of not he, bland. He's not bland. He's not bland. He's kind he's, of a bland preacher, but as far as sure. the, uh, but the rest of it has spice. Yeah. He's got they can something edit to it. him there. Yeah. 
And I think that's, that's an interesting, uh, I mean, I think everyone would generally agree with love God, love the student, love the subject, love life. And I had never thought of that as a characteristic of a highly effective teacher is that they actually have a life outside of teaching. Like it's not that they're so engrossed in their profession or calling that they don't have a life. It's actually that they have a very full and fun, like excited life. And that doesn't mean that they're, you know, doing all the things that I would think are fun, but they're, they're, they're full of life. There's some, something, the spark that's there. I think that they just enjoy like living yeah. Ecclesiastes. Yeah. They're having Honestly, a, you enjoy having a good the, time. You enjoy yeah. the portion with which God's given yes. you. And if you don't yeah. have that joy, there's something wrong with your. Yeah. And, and how many people have you met who are like rather dour? And like, it's, it's, they're like dour. It's like the dour theologian, you know, here's this guy who has all this truth, but he's, he's just like, doesn't like his life. Yeah. Why do I want? Yeah. Why do I want what you've got to offer? Yeah. Like they might, they might have the, the way I commonly illustrate this is a teacher or a discipler, a pastor, whoever, you know, whoever it is, they could have everything right. It could be a perfect picture of truth. But that picture could be black and white or it could be in color. Yeah. And, you know, most of us, since maybe like the 60s, don't really care for the black and white TVs anymore. <laughs> uh, maybe there's something too, like the exact same picture, but it's full of color. There's something to it. And I think I, I never thought of that aspect of a mm. teacher's life. I thought that was, you know, page page one of the forward. I thought that was a pretty yeah. interesting yeah. nugget. I like it's one that. of those problems, those people that allegorize the Song of Songs all the time. You, you know? know, very dour. <laughs> Speaking of allegorizing the Song of Songs. Now that's a segue to do you, do you want me to tee this up again for you? You just want to take it and what? run us right back to the Old Testament. Are you done? I thought you had more. No, that was it. I haven't finished oh. it yet. I'm progressing through it with my students. Man, that was like just, that. that's, that's the first characteristic of highly effective teachers that he... He doesn't call them characteristics. He calls them disciplines. Um, and so he has six more in his foreword, and we haven't even touched one of the seven laws yet, but good book. It's a good book. Um, it's worth your time. It's super short. And so I think you'll, uh, you know, it's, it's not like you're going to spend hours upon hours in it, but it, it might be worth a, a look for you. So if that first characteristic uh, left a little uh, taste in your mouth there. So. Mm. Yum, yum. Anyway, so the main content of this episode is that we had a listener previously mentioned, Randy Vodder, send us an article titled Eight Reasons to Rethink the Song of Songs. And so the Thinklings, led by Dr. Tim Little, are going to rethink the Song of Songs. So Tim Challies uh, shared this article in Friend his... of the podcast. <laughs> uh... <laughs> On this article, it was, anyway, he shared this article in his a la carte. I got we, like... We can, we can disagree with people's positions and still be their friends. We can, we can. Like, we're not jumping in anyone's hot tubs, okay? It's okay. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go back to the uh, Greg Kokel episode for that one. That was, that was off the air. Oh, that was off the air. Okay, another inside joke. <laughs> the, um... <laughs> So this article was published and Tim Challey shared it. I got like three people that sent it to me and Randy Vodder sent it on the, uh, to the, to the Thinklings email and just asked, Hey, 
I'd be interested to hear Tim's take on this article. There were some things that he really liked about it. In fact, there are a lot of good things that people publish and write about the Song of Songs when they allegorize it. These people are usually very well-intentioned. They want the church of God to be fed by the word of God, and they want them to grow in maturity. A major component of the Christian life is knowing God knowing the Lord. Uh, we see this repeatedly in Jeremiah, in all over the scriptures. Jeremiah 9 is what's coming to mind right now, just because our dean has recently preached on it. And in Jeremiah 9, you know, let the wise man not glory in his wisdom, or the mighty man grow, glory in his strength, or the rich man glory in his riches, but what? May they glory in this, that they know the Lord. So there's a great temptation to allegorize the Song of Songs, and these people are well-intentioned, but unfortunately in their efforts to feed the church and encourage the church in godly living, what they've inadvertently done is they have deprived the church of God's wisdom and truth concerning biblical intimacy and sexuality. So the article is titled, Eight Reasons to Rethink the Song of Songs. You can go and look it up yourself. Uh, J.A. Metters is working on a PhD project uh, concerning C.H. Spurgeon and the spiritual sense of the Song of Songs. In fact, throughout church history, most people have spiritualized the Song of Songs. Um, I have one book in front of me, Discovering Christ in the Song of Solomon by Don Fortner. So he is uh, allegorizing the Song of Songs. He doesn't make any argument against it. He states right at the beginning, he quotes John Gill. Uh, John Gill wrote, the whole song is figurative and allegorical. And then he has a longer quote. Then his next quote is C.H. Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon said, this book stands like the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and no man shall ever be able to pluck its fruit and eat thereof until first he has been brought by Christ past the sword of the cherubim and led to rejoice in the love which hath delivered him from death. So um, the, the quote goes on. I'm going to skip it. So now getting down, on, I'm on page 10 of uh, Fortner's book. Here is the first thing I want you to see. I hope that you can enter into it. The one thing all believers want is for Christ to manifest his love to their hearts in sweet, intimate communion. Again, Fortner wants the reader, the believer, to grow in their relationship with the Lord. That is a good thing. He then states, Our heart's desire is expressed in the words of verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. That is song 1-2. And his understanding of that is that you should have a sweet and intimate communion fellowship with Jesus. This is a clear allegorization of the Song of Songs. He then read, I'm going to read the next paragraph. The song begins very abruptly without any introduction. It opens with a cry of love to Christ, a desire for some manifestation of his love. It is the picture of a bride whose husband has been away for some time, but now she is anticipating his return. With hope, expectation, and delight, she cries, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Okay, here's the application, this next sentence, oh, that our Redeemer might return to us and smother us with the kisses of his grace. Yeah. So this is an allegorization of the Song of Songs, and what they desire is a good thing, but is that the authorial intended meaning of Song 1-2? 
And if you've been following us here on the Thinklings podcast at all, you'll see that you'll realize that's not what that text is talking about. In fact, the word love there is not love. It's loves. And it's an actually an erotic word. It's not the normal word for love. So there's bad exegesis leading to bad interpretation with the allegory. Okay, um, a lot of authors, though, have moved away from the allegorization of the Song of Songs. Instead, they've moved more towards, hey, you know what? This is a picture of human love. And God is teaching these principles of human love. But there's more to it than that. There's a Christological interpretation as well, and we need to also um, recognize that interpretation. So I've got two commentaries here that take that approach, and I would contend this is probably the most common uh, approach to the Song of Songs that I'm seeing uh, written today. Uh, The first one is Christ-centered exposition, exalting Jesus in the Song of Songs. The author is Daniel Aiken. Uh, This is a common Old Testament commentary series, and they work through and they talk about uh, developing a relationship with your with your spouse, and they get that from Song One, Two, Through Four. You know, one of their questions is, "Do you enjoy spending time with your mate?" So, in other words, hey, you know what? You should spend time with your spouse. Be a good application of Song One, One Through Four. But they always have this other uh, section that they add to each chapter. And after they go through all of the, all of that section, then they the, this uh, this section is headed by how does this text exalt Christ? And the the main point that they want you to gather is that you need to have a passion for your king. Uh, so there is a literal interpretation, which is, hey, you know what? You need to love your spouse and desire your spouse. Yes, but there's something more to it. Now, I'm going to just read a little bit here. Solomon's finest song is literally Solomon's Song of Songs. It is a superlative, like Holy of Holies, Vanity of Vanities, King of Kings, or Lord of Lords. And yet, in the best song ever, there is no mention, at least directly, of God. Is there any way to make sense of this? I believe David Hubbard provides a helping hand when he writes, and I'm going to read his quote here, God's name is absent from the entire setting, but who would deny that his presence is strongly felt? From whom comes such purity and passion? Whose creative touch can ignite hearts and bodies with such a capacity to bring unsullied delight to another? Who kindled the senses that savor every sight, touch, scent, taste, and sound of a loved one? Okay, what is this guy doing? What is Hubbard doing? I mean, it's very, uh, it's like an emotional appeal. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, it's extremely effective. general. Yes. It's, um, this yeah. is feelings. Who created us Subjective. with the five senses? Oh, that's true. God created us yeah. with the five senses. Okay. And so, hey, you know, this is the God of creation that created this entire thing. So he actually, I think, begins not too far off. Hmm. Can I exalt Christ and glorify the Lord because he, as the master creator, created this thing called intimacy? Of course. There's no problem there. Let's thank God for his many good gifts. Okay, so now I'm going to keep reading. Whose very character is comprised of the love that is the central subject of the song? Now he's maybe getting into a little bit of confusion because he's starting to confuse the different kinds of love. None of this is to allegorize either the minute details or the main sense of the book. It is about human love at its best, but behind it, above it, and through it, the song as part of the divinely ordered repertoire of scripture 
is a paean of praise to the Lord of creation who makes possible such exquisite love, and to the Lord of redemption who demonstrated love's fullness on a cross. It's like, what is he Mm. saying there? Okay? And he's like going back and forth, and I'm not even positive what he's exactly saying here, but there, I wanted to bring this quote up just to highlight. Go ahead. No. Well, no, why don't you highlight, and then I have a thought. Okay. Want to, to highlight that there is a component where um, a couple can enjoy intimacy the way that God designed it, and then praise the Lord of creation who created that, where a couple can love each other selflessly and sacrificially, and then praise the 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 Lord of creation who sent his son to to set the standard of how to love selflessly and sacrificially. But they're kind of confusing two things as well. What did you have? Well, it's just, it, it, it's, it's very similar to what you're saying. It feel it's not feel, it seems the way um, it reads when someone is trying to make an application mm-hmm. that doesn't fit. So like in class, I'll ask students in, in intro Bible study, like, okay, how do we apply this? And sometimes the applications are like orbiting the right application. Yes. And some of the times they're just like, they're like the, the asteroid that comes by once every hundred years. <laughs> and, and it, and to that, it seems like they took the verse in acts that says all the law and the prophets testify to me. And so now you have to find a way to, right. to make it connect to Christ. Yes. But it, but it's like reaching that, that's mm-hmm. kind of what it seemed like. It's it, like, like heavy, heavy abstraction. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Oh, if like, Love is like kind of the theme here. Just like start climbing that ladder. Like how far up that ladder do I have to climb to be relevant in the New Testament? Yes. <laughs> and, and I would say, I think the way it, you can see that is I think you could take those words and pull them off and stick them on any other chapter that uses the word exactly. love. And it, it's not particular to that, that, that section. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So he lit the author of Achan here. He then writes, um, the word king appears throughout the Song of Songs. He is the one with whom the bride wants to be alone while the crowds praise him. He is the one she wishes to please and also with whom to be on public display as she celebrates her marriage to him. He is her king, the one she longs to captivate with her attractiveness and beauty. This king is like no other. He restores what was lost in the garden, and he points to a wedding day and a marriage that only eternity will realize. Revelation 19, 7 through 10, 21, 1 through 2 is the passages. So he's creating the eschatological. It's like millennial kingdom. That's the marriage of Jesus with the church. No wonder the bride loves him so. Okay, so, so um, Aiken uses Hubbard and his very, very abstract understanding of love and then applying it, but then he jumps to the king, and then Jesus is the king, and the church is the bride, and he goes to the eschatology with it. Now, I don't, like, he, he's in the right ballpark, and he recognizes he restores what was lost in the garden, Okay, that's like the redemptive historical hermeneutic. There is a restoration to the Garden of Eden in the Song of Songs. It's in Song 710. Yeah, you've mentioned that before. I have. You've talked about that. That's part of what the picture is. Yes, but it's not a redemptive historical. It's an individual. It's like a couple, a husband and a wife. And what are they seeking to recover? The original Edenic love. 
yeah. where you had husband and wife alone and unashamed, mm-hmm. naked and unashamed in a garden of love and delight, the way that God originally designed it. Instead of going back and re- and calling a couple to recreate the Garden of Eden and that they can do it if they follow the principles laid out, wisdom principles laid out in the Song of Songs, he interprets it in a redemptive historical sense because he has to get Jesus in there and Jesus is the king who's mm. going to set up the kingdom. Mm. Okay, so anyway, um, this is a really common approach now. I'm just going to give you one more author. Uh, Sean O'Donnell in the Song of Solomon, An Invitation to Intimacy. This is the Preaching the Word series. His um, He does the same type of thing where he goes through, there's, there's a literal interpretation, then he has a section, Desiring Christ. Our final application is an application to all Christians, and it has to do with our desire for Christ. Just as your desire for intimacy with your spouse is a reliable indicator of your marital health, so too your desire for intimacy with Christ is is a reliable indicator of your spiritual health. To which I then ask, is that what Song of Songs is teaching? And the answer is no. That's not what Song of Songs is teaching. Um, Do you have a desire for Christ? If you don't have a desire for Christ, is there something wrong with your relationship? Probably. And you need to develop and cultivate that desire. But that's not the message of the Song of Songs. And this is what I see regularly. They say, hey, this is what the song means. It's about physical human love. But then they have this spiritual interpretation. But that spiritual interpretation is often true, but it's based upon other scripture passages. Hmm. So what they're saying and what they're trying to do is actually true, but unfortunately they they get there in the wrong way. Now one of the arguments uh, for the allegorical interpretation of the song uh, comes from history. And we've had a session on history. In fact, um, Professor Stern, Mr. Stearns, I guess I can just call you Andy here, can't I? You can. Uh, Andy. You've been able to call me that our entire friendship. <laughs> Andy talked about Don't history. Don't look at me like that. Nard dog. <laughs> oh my goodness. Andy um, went through about history, and history is a helpful thing, something that we should consider. You know, how has the song historically been interpreted? And the answer is allegorically. In fact, uh, some contend the the uh, are authors who argue for an allegorical interpretation. This is one of their arguments, is the historical interpretation. But unfortunately, they fail to realize that it has not been some uh, universal understanding of the song. There is actually a historical, I would call it a remnant, <laughs> of, uh, of authors... Fortuitous word choice. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> of, uh, of authors who've interpreted the song uh, literally. Um, Rabbi Akiva was one who allegorized the song, and he spoke against those who interpreted it literally. Now, what does that then assume? Someone interpreted it literally. And he is not the only one. So while the primary interpretation of the song has been allegorical, throughout history, there have been proponents of its literal interpretation. If, If you don't have this info right now, that's fine. But where and when was Rabbi Akiva? Like, where was he in the world? And when was he historically? Do you know? He was one of the rabbis. I believe he was in Palestine. Uh, he died in 135 AD. Ooh. So. Ooh. Right. That's really early. 
for a literal interpretation to be proposed. Oh no, he he wasn't interpreting. No, no, literal, but he's oh, writing okay. against a literal interpretation mm-hmm. in Palestine mm-hmm. of all places. Ooh. So Ooh. I found the actual quote. He wrote, "He who warbles the song of songs in a banquet hall and makes it into a kind of love song has no portion in the world to come." Pretty hard words. At the same time, the Greek set translation of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the set that would be called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it understood the Song of Songs literally. We see that in Song of Songs chapter 7, verse 12. In the Hebrew Bible, it's verse 13. There's the word dodim. The Hebrew word dodim is a plural, loves, and it's an intimate word. The Septuagint did not translate it loves, it translated it breasts. So they clearly understood it to be a uh, love song. We'll just kind of leave it there. So there is a history of interpretation through the um, annals of time of a literal interpretation of the song. And it wasn't just perverts. The translators of the Greek Septuagint understood it that way as well. Yes. So he said, Rabbi, whatever his name was. Yeah. Said, the one who warbles the song. Yeah. So just like that warbler is a bird. That, okay. So it means to like sing or someone has a mm-hmm. shrill voice. Mm-hmm. So it's like someone who's like uh-huh. promoting. He, don't, don't read too much into no, it. No, no, no. I'm just saying like, but that means you warble. Yes. I'm him. a warbler. <laughs> Okay, so I that's all. I just want to I just want to bring that up. I don't know. The guy would have been talking in Mishnaic Hebrew, and I, I or or it may have been Aramaic, and I don't know what the word was, but I've seen oh. it translated different ways. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. Uh, I am reading Othmar Kiel's translation. Okay. in the Song of Songs, and I think another word I've said, uh, I've heard is he who interprets the Song of Songs as a lyric. A lyric. Okay. Okay. So lyrics. Okay. Keel's being punchy in his translation of Rabbi okay. Akiba. Okay. The only reason is I thought from now on you're going to be called the warbler, oh, but no, no, never mind. A little warbler. A little oh my goodness. Warbler. Lord have mercy. <laughs> okay. So how do we handle this whole thing about- but uh, a warbler is a songbird. Allegorizing the Song of Songs. So um, Othmar Keel in his introduction, and by the way, there you could get most of your- um, heavier hitting commentaries are going to have a section on the allegorical interpretation of the song. And I've even thought about adding something uh, against the allegorical interpretation of the song to uh, our book and putting it in as an appendix. It's been suggested. It's not ruled out yet, but we'll see. I have a quote here. I'm reading Othmar Kiel. Um, He is basically saying, you know, he's arguing against allegorization. I can illustrate my point with two random examples involving uh, Canticles, Song of Songs, 113. My beloved is to me a bag of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Allegorizers take this verse to mean one thing between two others, which signifies, among other things, either the presence of the Lord, the Shekinah, between the two cherubim. Okay, so Song 113, this was a Jewish interpretation. So this is like the presence of the Lord between the two cherubim uh, above the ark. That was Rashi and Ibn Ezra's interpretation. Or if we want to get out of the Jewish interpretation, we can move into the Christological interpretation. Christ between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You might be more familiar with that one, but that was held by Philo Carpasius Cyril of Alexandria. Um, And those are two 
early church fathers who held that view. So this just, uh, I like to use just as a radical example to say why, hmm, I don't know if that's really what the author had in mind. I think he probably had something else in mind. Keel then states, and this is, I, uh, this quote is gold, and I've used it on multiple occasions. On page eight of his Song of Songs commentary, if two allegorizers ever agree on the interpretation of a verse, it is only because one has copied from the other. <laughs> that is so glorious. It's really punchy. There was a, when I used to teach a history of interpretation and in study early on, Yes, there was a quote that, um, and it's a famous quote, but allegory is like a wax nose you can make it shape it however you want yeah and that is perfect and 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 there's an always an allegorical interpretation for as many people as there are who come to that interpretation how sorry yeah and you can you know you can read the song and you can find some spiritual (laughs) it's kind of crazy to think but we're very creative if we want to find something there we can find it and you will And, and look it's been done I mean, Song 113 is a classic example of how in the world are we going to handle this one? And they found a way. Um, all right, so I'm going to get to the article now by Matter. Can, can I just ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Maybe I should. And then I, and then I want to Char- make a, Charles giving me the note. Go ahead. I want to make a summary statement. Shoot, how, shoot. How, how, how would anyone in Solomon's day have understood Christ was between the Testaments? Yeah, they, they, you have to, you cut yourself off from the, the text meaning anything. Yeah. But you've essentially, when you're going there, what you're, you're kind of grabbing onto some hermeneutic. I mean, uh-huh. you know, we don't understand the old Testament. We have to go to the new Testament to understand it. So, uh, yep. some new Testament priority interpretation, oh, it was embedded okay. in scripture all along. We didn't know hidden. it. It was, it was, it was hidden, hidden there. Okay. You know, now that we have the New Testament, okay. we can Christologically well, interpret it correctly. Okay. My, my thought is kind of like, it's in a similar vein. But so when we say the words replacement theology, we're talking about a, a vein of uh, reformed thinking where like the church replaces the people of Israel. And what's kind of interesting to me is that that, idea of replacement theology comes out of a very certain hermeneutic. And what is that hermeneutic doing? They might not deny that there was an original meaning, but that original meaning is now void because the New Testament now takes its place. And so like they're doing in the Old Testament what they eventually think the church is going to do to Israel. Like they're like, oh sure, there might have been an original audience and they might not have known, but but guess what now? This is what it means now. And like, that is just, if you ever had someone do that to you, yeah, you would hate it. Like, I know you texted me this, but now that text means this. It's a, it's a, it, it just, it breaks communication. It's down. not a literal text. It's an allegorical text. And now I get to say, make you say whatever I want you to say. Ah. Like oh, my interpretation sorry. has replaced your interpretation. <laughs> sorry, listener, we're kind of lit up on this one. Okay, so we Carry need on, to look Dr. at the Wolf. actual reasons that Metters Metters gives uh, as evidence that we should rethink the Song of Songs and then under, understand it allegorically. What? Can I just make one, so one more comment? Go ahead. We did talk about this a few episodes back, but like, why is knowing history important? Hmm. So here's someone in 2022 rehashing an issue that we've already pointed out, they've been having this discussion for a couple thousand years. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to step into a blog in 2022 
and throw out some ideas. The, the likelihood that you're coming up with something on your own is very small. In fact, you're probably copying someone else. And so the benefit of knowing those things would be really good. And isn't he getting, he's getting this from Spurgeon. He says it right there. Spurgeon in the is yeah. his, yeah, he uses Spurgeon's hermeneutic. So uh, listener, we, Charles Spurgeon did a ton of good stuff. Okay. Oh, yeah. He was so many good things. Yeah. But not the interpretation of the song of songs. Okay. <laughs> he actually misinterpreted most of the old Testament because he adopted what's been known as the Christological interpretation, a Christological hermeneutic. And so he read Jesus into all kinds of passages in the old Testament. Now this gets in stems right into his first point. Metter's first point is Jesus's view of the old Testament. And I'm quoting Metter's here in the article. Jesus said the whole Bible is about him. John 5.39 and Luke 24.27. Our belief that the entire canon bears witness to the Messiah, to Jesus of Nazareth, must include the Song of Songs. If not, then we don't have a thoroughly Christian reading of the Old Testament. Okay, so his textual proof that Jesus said the whole Bible is about him is found in Luke 24.27. I want you guys to help me out and respond to this. I'm going to read, or do you have it there? I'm pulling up the John passage right, while you're I've got up Luke 24, 27. I know what the Luke passage is about. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, is this verse teaching that all of the scriptures in the Old Testament, the whole Bible is about... No, no, no. I need to rephrase. Does this teach, as Metters claims, that the whole Bible is about Jesus? Oh, it, hold on. Now I'm going to pull it up because I don't think that's what it was. What it said. It said the things. In the beginning it? at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them. Okay. He explained, he interpreted yep. to them. The things concerning himself, not all of it, like the things that were concerning Correct. him. Correct. Well, so we could even get, can we get more technical? Go ahead. Yes, so we can. He says Get the word technical. in all the scriptures, but he's already qualified what he means when he says that. And he gives two qualifications of the of the Old Testament. Moses, which would be the law, and the prophets. He does not mention the writings. Yeah, yeah, but okay, and I know the Song of Songs is found in the writings. I think in one of the parallel accounts the writings might be and some or even still uh, some would argue that the law and the prophets is still a summary for all for all of it but i do believe especially in the lucan account when only mo um let's see here beginning at moses and all the prophets the pentateuch yeah where do we see most of the evidence from uh in the old testament that jesus is the messiah the law and the prophets those are like the two big chunks Okay, now in the writings, you do have the Psalms, which is why I believe in the parallel account. I don't even see any variants that bring up the writings. Well, the Psalms, one of the uh, texts says the Psalms. Oh, okay. Okay. I can't remember where it's at. It might be in this even passage at the end. But, but even even that would be different than the writings. Yeah, though. but the Psalms is often a synecdoche for yeah, all of the yes, writings. You're correct. So it could it doesn't matter because the point is that he's not literally, oh, we gotta get through every book of the Bible to show how Jesus is in every book of the Bible. Okay. The point is that he's teaching them all oh, of yes. the things that relate to Jesus, not that all of the Bible yeah. is about Jesus. Just from a Greek standpoint, you have a, def- a definite article not attached to any other term 
So it's just like the word the randomly floating there. And pasais tais grafais ta perihea too. So it's it's like the concerning the himself. Concerning and himself. that's how you say it. it's like seek the above. It's like mm-hmm. those, it's a definite thing. So right. this is not unilateral mm-hmm. everything in the Old Testament. It, it's like there are things in there that concern him. Mm-hmm. Man, I've heard that misquoted so many times and I didn't even realize it. Oh yeah. So I've preaching. Wow. Matthewson in his uh, book, I think it's Preaching Christ in the Old Testament. He nails the he nails it on the head. He gets it. And many other commentators, I mean, you could study through the Lucan commentators. Again and again, um, this passage is not teaching that Jesus is found in all of the scriptures. And I would even contend Jesus is not in the Song of Songs. And that's okay. I'm still a Christian. He is in the Old Testament repeatedly. And I go to those passages and argue that Jesus was, his coming was prophesied and so on and so forth, but he's not in the Song of Songs. Yep. Okay, so that's point number one. Now, a couple of these are going to take a little longer. Some of them we've already dealt with. Number two is the illumination of the Spirit, and this is a big one. He states, if there is no spiritual interpretation, spiritual significance, or Christological meaning in the book, then the Song of Songs is the only book of the Bible that you don't need the Holy Spirit's illuminating power. All you need is an understanding of ancient Near Eastern Yeesh. poetry. Big Yikes. problems this here. This is not okay. good illumination theory Huge. At all. Okay, no. His view of illumination is totally off. Okay, so how does the Spirit of God work through the Word of God to transform people? Conviction of sin, of yes. righteousness, and the judgment to come. This is not giving you meaning understanding. Mm-hmm. No. This is giving you conviction that, the, I, that this applies to me. Right. It's telling me that this like affects me. Precisely. And so that's where the, in, the allegorical interpretation of the Song of Songs is so damaging to the <clears throat> spiritual maturity of the body of Christ and the individual believer, because God has given us this little book in the Bible to teach us how to live as sexual beings and to serve our spouses. So you can go to Song 215, where it says, seize the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. God's design for the married couple is that they would enjoy intimacy as a husband and wife the way that God designed it. Well, guess what you need to do? You're going to need to seize the foxes. You're going to need to catch the little things that destroy the relationship between you two. What are you going to need to be able to see the foxes to then be able to see that seize them yeah the illumination the illuminating work well, of the holy we, spirit just to get us you know so the last sentence of that paragraph is pretty i didn't quote, even read that one you go you, ahead pretty horrendous so when you talk about a natural hermeneutic quote if the surface meaning of romance so if the surface meaning the very plain meaning of the text is the only meaning of this oh, book, this is then an unbeliever can understand and live this book just as much as a believer. Yeah. And that's so wrong. So it, it just, it just, it There's, whiffs on an understanding of the mm-hmm. internal work of the spirit yeah. in our own yep. sanctification. Right. I think this is hermeneutical uh, leaven mm-hmm. because you learn this hermeneutic here mm-hmm. and then it's just going to affect everything else about the way you see Ooh. the Bible and handle it. Sorry to, I, I'll call And you're getting me riled up. Number three is not good either. We might so, have to make this a two-parter, Tim. Number three, we've already <laughs> talked about, so I don't know. I was going to skip this one. Church history so can, is his can, third point. Can we point. just make a comment on it, though? So he says that for the first 1,800 years of church history, the spiritual interpretation of the song was, and he italicizes, the interpretation. And that's just bad scholarship, because I've already showed you yeah. that there are other interpretations of that's the song what, before. That was going to be Which my point. Which is what Lewis said about 
history actually frees you from being enslaved right. to history because well, you can see other things. Isn't there a nugget of uh, fallacy there too that like the majority yep. is the authority? Yeah. And so like, oh, look, everyone believes this. So there can't be another view, right? But, you know, he does He does give a pretty nice list of guys that, uh, you know, we, we applaud them <laughs> for a lot of other things, mm-hmm. uh, like Martin Luther's on this list, uh, but we would not applaud him for his understanding of the Old Testament. And listener, I just want to, I just want to interject here. We, I hope our our animation in how we're talking about this doesn't uh, uh, make us come off arrogant. Like we we are fallible and we're working hard at this. Absolutely. This is just for us. This is so different than we're seeing it. We should probably be careful to not come off haughty. Mm-hmm. But th- th- some of this is, uh, I, I think, especially number one, like looking up Luke twenty four twenty seven and just reading. Uh, th- that's low hanging fruit. Right. And then even historical scholarship, like you said, that that's low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. So this is showing some issues. So, so sorry for appearing to be flippant or oh, it's just, this is. And know, in the, in the spirit of Lewis, near. we want to read equitably. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, by all means, if, uh, you know, I'm sure we could have a, we have many conversations with people that we disagree on some big mm-hmm. things. That's not a, like you can't be friends with someone, you can't love someone, but I think you can look at an idea isolated from the person who said it mm-hmm. or blogged it and recognize that the ideas are not always great. So. Thanks. His fourth point is the name of the book. I thought this was kind of a funny point. I haven't heard this one before on the uh, to promote the allegorization of the book. The name of the book is the Song of Songs. That is the name of the book. It's derived from Song 1-1. And he notes, is the same superlative paradigm as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Holy of Holies. He's exactly right. I, When I preach the song, I use those as illustrations. But he fails because he doesn't actually explain what King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Holy of Holies means. What does King of Kings mean? The King over all the kings. He, Jesus is the King over all the kings. He is the Lord over all of mm-hmm. the lords. So what is the song of songs? It's the most best song it's ever the best of song. all the songs it is the best it is solomon's best song okay oh. it is the song of songs which is solomon so solomon wrote over a thousand songs and guess what one we have here inscribed in scripture the best one the best that's the interpretation See, so, so what i thought he was going to do with that is i thought he was going to say jesus is the song well like he's the greatest he's the king he's the lord he's the holy one he's the song that's what i thought he was gonna do that's not what he does no instead he makes this i don't know i mean i don't know what to even call it but because he sees this comparison with king of kings lord of lords and holy of holies he then says this is the greatest song because it's about the great love of god for us sinners i'm like what you just were over here and then you just went (laughs) whoop Way over here, there's no connection here between these two things. Go ahead. So sometimes dispensationalists are charged with free association, like they open a newspaper. That's it, free association. And they see, you know, there's going to be the uh, whatever is going on. And they're like, oh, I see that here. And they just free associate. And I'm not trying to flip it, but I am I am looking at the saying, I, I don't understand how the, what what's happening here isn't the same kind of interpretation. Mm-hmm. And, and anyways, I would just... And I don't think we're free associator, but I would just say that this is in my mind and, and I well, want to talk, it's very freely associated. And he, you know, if he did want to compare like, oh, who's the king of kings? It's Jesus. Who's the Lord of lords? It's Jesus. Who's the holy of holies? It's Jesus. Who's the song of songs? It's Jesus. That works 
until you get to Ecclesiastes and you have the Hevel Hevelin, <laughs> the, the vanity, vanity of vanities, <laughs> and that is not about Jesus. That's great. That was a quality <laughs> reductio right there, Carter. I'm gonna give you could, three he, emojis to, to give him to give him credit. He did not do that, but if he did, I'd be like, "Well, hold on." It's just it's a specific grammatical construction. Yeah, that's all it is. It's a superlative. Okay, number five, six, and seven and eight are basically all have very very little to do with the book. The fifth one is Solomonic themes. And so Solomon is a shadow of the one who says he is greater than Solomon, a greater king, a greater sage, and a greater lover of his people. So the Solomonic themes connect to Jesus. Uh, okay. And then geographic themes, the Song of Songs is about the Garden of Eden and Jerusalem. Aren't God's people longing to go to the garden, to the new Jerusalem, to the promised land that is flowing with milk and honey? Question mark. Mm. The song foreshadows the blessings to come from the reign and rule of the Messiah, the bridegroom of God's people, Christ the Lord. I mean, I don't see how this is an argument for the allegorical interpretation anymore. Mm. All he's doing is allegorizing the song, and then he's saying this is an argument for the allegorical interpretation. It's an eschatologically driven argument. Yes. It's your theological system. Mm -hmm. It's his eschatology. Yeah. And he's saying this is, it's, it's more like the other direction. Yes. Mm -hmm. The redemptive theme is the same as the geographical theme. Just the redemptive one is the, the, the bride, um, um, the, uh, the bride of Christ and then man and then redeeming creation. So he builds off of song 710, which is interesting because it demonstrates he has some knowledge of the song. There's Genesis 3.16 and Song 7.10. I've talked about it multiple times on the podcast. And then point eight is marriage is a mega theme. So the idea that marriage and you have the bridegroom uh, and uh, the bride in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the church is the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5, all of these bride marriage terminology things means and is an argument for the allegorical interpretation. I'm just like, n no, you have marriage and there's this concrete thing called marriage. Now, what you do when you create a metaphor, you take something concrete and then you make it abstract. The concrete thing is a physical union of a husband and a wife. And that's why that is such an important component of a Christian marriage and a Christian life, because you're literally living out something abstract. And that's why the biblical man needs to be the biblical husband and selflessly and sacrificially serve his wife, because that is a picture to a lost and dying world of what love really mm. is. Mm. That's why a wife needs to submit to her husband just as the church should submit to Christ because you're living out something abstract that a dying world can't understand. Okay? So marriage is a mega theme. I think that's a strong... Um, terribly misunderstood. Okay, we're going really long here. I'm just going to kind of wrap stuff up. Um, there are a few different reasons why I think we should reject the allegorical interpretation, even based upon exegesis. If we go to Song chapter 8, in Song chapter 8, verse 5, it states, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Then the beloved does the speaking. I awakened you, under the apple tree. The pronoun you there does not have a gender in English, but it does in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, 
The gender is masculine. And this is a fatal objection to the allegorical interpretation because here Jesus is sleeping because Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is waking him up. It's like messed up. It fails. Okay? Because it's always God initiating the um the uh God initiating the um reaching out to humanity. Instead, it's turned around and it's like her reaching out and waking Jesus mm. up. Like, huh? That doesn't work. There your mother gave birth to you. The you there is masculine. So that would be like the birth of Jesus. So this is Mary. <laughs> there she who bore you brought you forth. So the allegorical interpretation of Song 8-5 um, is, is fatally destroyed in, in this passage. And commentators have acknowledged it for a long time. So long, in fact, that the Peshitta, the Syriac translation of the Old Testament, changed the pronouns from masculine to feminine. So then what? it could be, I awakened you under the apple tree, and the you would then be feminine. So then it's Jesus awakening the church. Okay, wow. so there's a major That's like Jehovah okay, Witness so level. Text it's messing. not. It's not though, because the the difference between the masculine and the feminine forms is actually just a vowel, and if you're familiar with Hebrew, there are no vowels oh, in I see. the language. Okay. So all they had to do was change the pronunciation the of yep. the word okay. with the vowel. But this is, then became actually an argument, which which uh, um, scholars have mentioned repeatedly how the vocalization of the Hebrew text, its tradition is really, really, really old because it survived centuries of allegorical interpretation. Song 8.5. Wow. Where in the world would they get the masculine pronoun from? Even the Jewish yeah. rabbis would not have liked this. Mm -hmm. They would have wanted God, the Father, being the awakener of Israel. Mm -hmm. All right? So Song 8.5 actually is, I believe, a fatal blow to the song, uh, to the allegorical interpretation of the song. Wow. And now finally... And notice, by the way, listener, that that is an exegetical... Argument. ...reason yeah. Yeah. for why one position would be perhaps superior to another. And it's on exegetical grounds. Yep. Haven't had a lot of those yet. The last reason why I want you to reject the allegorical interpretation of the song comes from an from um, from a, a session I went to when I went to the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, Chloe's son presented an article on "My Beloved Is Dazzling," reading Song of Songs five ten through sixteen for the church. I attended the session because I was really hoping for a literal interpretation of the text and application. I believe Song 5, 10 through 16 is actually an important passage that can really help build a biblical sexual ethic, but she totally whiffs. Why? Because she allegorizes the Song of Songs. Now, she doesn't just go straight to allegory. She argued for an inter a literal interpretation. Okay, so it is about exalting in the Beloved, I'm just going to read to you Song 510. My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, prominent among 10,000. And she correctly made a correlation how this sounds like David. He was ruddy. He was beautiful. I mean, the, in, the, in 1 Samuel 16, mm -hmm. he's described as beautiful, yeah. as good looking, prominent among 10,000. I mean, what does that sound like? 
I mean, Saul, you've killed yeah. your thousands, but David, David you're, you're 10,000. 10, exactly yeah. what I thought of. Yeah. It's and pretty so, prominent. Yeah. So she nails it and she understands that exegesis. But unfortunately, what does she do? She allegorizes the song and, she's, and if she goes to it too soon, if that she went to it at all. After the session, I went up to her and I, I talked to her and I said, hey, have you done some work on the actual literal interpretation of the song and how that might help Christian women to love their husbands because this passage i told her isn't it and she highlighted this she highlighted this it was so funny i wanted to raise my hand but there were a lot of people that raised their hands i didn't get my chance so she she highlighted this notice that he, she, she's not looking at her husband in song 5 10 through 16 he's not there she has to think about him the other wasps in the song, in song four, six, and seven, the man's describing the wife, and she's there. He sees her. But here, the man's not there. She has to yeah. think about it's, him. Just a four, yeah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I really think that that's intentional because all of these intimacy books always talk to the wives, trying to encourage yeah. them. How do you, how do you stir up feelings for your life? The number one sexual organ in a woman's body is her brain yeah and i'm like i think that they're the the song's actually literally teaching that and she's teaching you know woman hey guess what this is one way that you can serve your husband you can awaken desire for him Mm -hmm. how do you do that you have to think good things (laughs) about him think bad things about him well it's going to have an opposite effect and this is why i really hate the allegorical interpretation of the song and that pairs very well with um, New Testament teaching and elsewhere about critical spirit, loving one another, thinking the best of one another. Like that harmonizes very well with New Testament teaching about loving your husband and loving other believers. Mm -hmm. It it, it just, it fits perfectly. So I think you could draw, I don't want to get lost here. I know we're going quite long, but how you could maybe properly abstract a passage like that and apply it in a church setting that is not for married people. So you're talking about thinking, and we know that the original... Oh, I've, I've already thought through that. I've wrote about well, it. Well, like Philippians 2, you know? Like, well, I don't need to go outside of... I don't need the New Testament for this. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> you never need it. <laughs> but, you know, where, where there is a New, Testament, did. a New Testament command to think of the needs of others. And you, yeah. yeah, sure. Sure. But I mean, from this passage alone, I think it's teaching, hey, you know what? Even you single girls, you know, think about all of these desires and feelings that are raging through your body and what you desire right now. Guess what? When you get married, okay, that's going to be different. In fact, what are you going to have to do? It's funny. It's almost like before marriage, that's all you're thinking about. Exactly. But after marriage. Done. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, but you cut all that off with the I, allegorical. There's, there's even more to that whole conversation. But the point of the text is being, and I think it'd be helpful for our single ladies to understand this even before they're married, and for the guys to realize, you know, hey, guess what? Be desirable. That'd be a big, yeah, point here from for the guys. But, but hey, guess what? When you're married, sometimes you, when you don't desire, when you don't love, and you don't want him. Well, you don't have to be a victim to your feelings. You can actually cultivate and create the desire, and the Song of Songs is what teaches you to do that. That's going to take the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit for you to see that. That sounds like something we need to proclaim today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. 
We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.